the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. You ever wonder what your kids are learning in school? Oh, I don't necessarily mean things such as the history of the country and how to read and write and things of that sort, all important to be sure, but what are the other things that they're learning in school? You know what I mean, Mom and Dad, the other things? School's in session, and some things are taking place that perhaps are going to shock parents. It is incumbent, I think, on all of us to understand, to to help bridge the so-called generation gap and know what our kids are learning how they're feeling, and ultimately how they're being influenced by both their peers and even by the educators. With some insights to help us all wake up to the realities of what kids are learning both in and outside of school, Annie Brainer joins us. He's a teen expert, author of an expose on teen sex and dating, what's really going on and how to talk about it, published by Nav Press. And Andy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me on the show. Parents frequently certainly will focus on things like, are you getting your homework done? What do your grades look like? Things of this sort. All important issues, to be sure. And yet it's what's not on the official curricula sometimes that we ought to most be worried about. Right. We... uh we, I spent uh, two years uh, researching this book uh, in the hallways of the high schools across America and, and actually came up with some pretty alarming uh, <laughs> results. Uh, I found that uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an undercurrent of sexuality happening in our, in our high schools today that is akin to the sexual revolution of the 60s, but it's all being done kind of under the radar. And so I would encourage parents, uh, just like you said, there's a lot of things we can see that we expect kids to learn from school. But it's the relationships that they're having uh, in the hallways of the high school, when school's over, on, on weekends, that, that, we sh- that we should really be concerned about. All right, here's a fact check, uh, reaching out to some of the FAQ that parents ought to be asking of their teens, or at least aware of. Uh, let's begin with the first point that you address, and that is that there is significantly more sexual activity going on than most parents are aware of. In fact, according to a CDC study, half of high school students have had sexual intercourse and 14 percent i mean you know it's not for far from being one out of every five have had relations physical relations with four or more partners and we're talking about kids still in high school Right. I was in the school, um, and I won't mention the name of the school, but I, was, I have a chance to go into some of these schools and, and do assemblies and talk to students about you know, faith and, and what they're really thinking about faith and what they're thinking about life. And, and, and I, would, I, I commonly get a group of kids together just to ask about their dating relationships. And I, and I just say, look, 
bottom line, you're not going to see me again in three days, so you know you can be honest with me, and I'm not going to go tell your parents what's going on. But tell me what's going on in the dating relationships in this high school. And as we're sitting around the table, uh, one of the one of the guys hop, popped piped in, and he he said, uh, Andy, here at our school, it's just like we we just hook up with each other, you know, every day. And so, and, and hook up has a different meaning than maybe some parents might think that it is. They have a they have a, a location that they'll go to. And they'll literally engage in physical activity, and and when it's over, it's just kind of like they just kind of went and played basketball in the backyard. They <clears throat> they come back to school and they say, you know, they they give each other high fives and wasn't that fun last night, and and then the next night they do the same thing over and again. And so each night we have teenagers that are out just hooking up with each other. And 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 even worse, so not only is any sense of impropriety gone or shame or guilt uh, apparently just completely uh, cast aside, but then isn't it so that at certain levels we see Andy the influence of so-called modern-day social media uh, that is helping exacerbate all of this? Because now you know not only are the kids are hooking up and then they're bragging about it on Facebook or or texting each other, if not with the gory details, even with photographs. Oh, uh, with the gory details and photographs. Wow. It's, it's unbelievable in fact i'll get i'll get emails from parents that that sneak on their kids computer and they'll download the latest skype conversation that they're having and it would i mean it just makes you blush to think about the language that kids are using and the and the uh, just the explicitness of what's going on so we've gone from being concerned about our kids potentially being exposed to pornography in the seedy parts of town to now actually creating the pornography oh no doubt no doubt uh-huh. And most parents, I mean, as much as you talk to teens, you also talk to their parents. What's the reaction? I mean, you're speaking upwards of, of 80,000, 100,000 teens every year. You have a lot of impact and, and opportunity to talk to the parents. When you when you share some of these details, much as we are here this afternoon, what's the reaction? I find that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of parents who would, would come and they'd say, obviously they'd be in the camp, they'd say, oh, that's not my kid. My kid would never do that. My kid would never be involved in that. Uh, and then you have some parents that that say, "Okay, I see the issue. I see what you're doing now. What do you, what can we do to encourage our kids? And especially in the Christian communities, when I go in and start talking about dating and relationships, um, there are some honest parents that go, "Hey, look, um, we need help. Uh, we need we need folks that can bridge the gap between the teen relationship and the parent relationship. Help us coach our kids." And so you, you know, you kind of get both sides of the spectrum. But but I tend to focus on the ones that are going, "All right, we." We get it. We know our kids are not perfect. We know our kids could be involved in this. Teach me how to coach my kid to have a successful relationship in high school. A lot of parents feel overwhelmed by this, a sense of perhaps being out of control because of the number of counter-influences to what they're trying to teach their kids. I mean, I would assume parenting today is as it was when I was a kid, that most parents want to be able to set up an atmosphere in the household that that establishes and then helps to encourage uh, certain standards and and a standard for living, a moral code, et cetera, et cetera. Mine happened to to come out of the church, but, you know, somehow some sort of a, a decent code of behavior that parents are not only having to compete with with um, the counterculture that is out there that's running contrarian to what they're trying to teach their kids and values in the home or or in church and then on top of all of this i bet there's a huge frustration because just parents feel as if there's little they can do right but i think um it's easy sometimes for parents to just defer to all the other influences but the research has shown us now when you ask kids about the most influential people in their life in other words, what are the most what are the most uh, 
prominent voices in your life today, the research that's come out say parents still hold the number one spot in developing a worldview of that teenager. And, and to most parents, I can say, you know, how many times have we been driving down the road with our kids in the back seat and we say something, uh, you know, our kids are acting up or something, and we say, be quiet, stop touching each other, and all of a sudden this memory of you being in that car kind of comes through and you remember your mom or your dad saying those things, all to point to uh, the things that we learn about parenting often come from our parents. And so I often encourage parents to think about if you have the number one influence in your child's life, and secondly is friendships, peer relationships, and then third, the research comes out and says that the media holds the third position. So, so if you've still got the number one spot, then it's time for parents to start really parenting. It start, it's time for parents to really think about, you know, when is my kid on that computer and who are they talking to on that computer and who are they texting, you know, when they're at the dinner table and, and, and start taking control and, and be a parent in your house. My goodness, you're still mom and you're still dad and you have a responsibility to, to rise up and raise your kids. If you've just joined the conversation, Andy Branner with us tonight, teen expert, author of an expose on teen sex and dating, what's really going on, and how to talk about it. We'll come back to more of the insights and our conversation tonight. If you want to join us with a comment or a question, join in. Toll-free number is 888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. That's 888-367-5329. A timeout. Back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Andy Branner with me tonight, guest expert on teens, author of a new book called An Expose on Teen Sex and Dating, What's Really Going On and How to Talk About It. You know, one of the other big uh, shockers here, I think, for a lot of parents is the amount of alcohol and drug abuse going on. Uh, there was a Department of Health and Human Services substance abuse report that came out that found that order over a quarter of teens, 25%, have engaged in uh, alcohol abuse under the age of 21, and 17% have gotten engaged in so-called binge drinking. There are folks listening to this program right now, Andy, who have never binged drank in their life, let alone doing it before the age of 18. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The uh, those are the old those are the old teenage adages, right? If we can only get them to stop drinking and stop smoking weed and stop having sex, then then everything will be fine. But but what we found is that those are just merely a veneer. All those issues, those classic teenage issues, are just uh, those are the, the surface issues of something deeper going on. And what we find those things to be true out here, we've got a little place called Kivu out in Colorado. We have over a thousand students every summer that come out here to do adventures in Colorado, and 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 during that time we get a chance to really live life with students. And so what we find is that most students that are that are just trying to make their journey through high school are struggling with significance. And and it might not just be a teen issue; it could be. I mean, it's probably just all of us, right? We all want to feel valuable. We all want to feel significant. We all want to feel like we've got somebody that'll listen to us. And 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 the more that I find kids that are engaged in activities, as you mentioned, the more I find somebody crying out, going. Who in this world is going to value me? Mm. Who's going to be with me? And I, and I would say, and I say this every time I get in front of an audience, the number one issue in the teenage world today is not drinking, it's not sex, it's not drugs. The number one issue is loneliness. They're walking through life, and they just feel all alone. 
You know, and the amazing thing to that message is that's kind of the description of the, the human condition overall, isn't it? That's it. Yeah, that's it. And I, th- I find the more that I can, when I bend down to look a student in the eye and I, and I give them the value that they deserve as being human, all of a sudden their eyes light up and they think, oh, wow, somebody, somebody cares for me. And if they can do that at home, if a mom and a dad can do the parenting thing in a way that they really invest time in the things that teenagers like to do, and they really focus on valuing their students, sure there's disciplinary things, surely there's correction things, surely there are issues where we have to get in and mentor and coach, but when I place value in my teenager, he longs to be with me. He wants to be with people that find him valuable. And it goes back to the old age old adage that oftentimes the best thing that you can do to sort of inoculate your kids against all that the world has to offer out there is just to spend some time with them. And if you use the excuse, oh, but I'm putting in 60-hour work weeks to earn enough money so we can take the big vacations and live in the bigger house, I'm doing it all for my kids. In the end, you're going to find out that uh, uh, the opposite effect of what you were hoping for comes to fruition. That's it. And I tell kids, I tell parents a lot. You know, when my kids got to the age where they could they could do Legos and they started stacking Legos, uh, they would sit in the living room for hours just stacking these things and making these different concoctions of Lego buildings and stuff. And I got to tell you, Craig, I hate Legos. I just don't think that way. I have no patience. I don't. I don't. I can't put the six block with the four block with the two block. But it was the times that I sat in the living room and said, you know what? Even though I don't like doing this, I know you love it. And to to spend time with you, I'm going to do the thing that you like to do. Those were the relationships where where relationships started being made. That's when they started seeing, hey, Dad really cares about us because he wants to spend time doing what we want to do. So I encourage parents all, all the time, you know, if you can find that thing, if it's video games, don't don't just turn the, the Xbox off. Maybe sit down with your kid and say, hey, teach me how to do this. I'd love to do this with you, and get into their world. And once you get into their world then these conversations about drinking and drugs and sex and relationships at school and academics and all the different things that they're involved in start just bubbling forth without you even really having to ask any real hard questions. You're not suggesting to try to be a peer or a friend. I mean, you can be a friend to your kids, but, you know, your, your kids will have plenty of friends in their lifetime. They're only going to have one mother and one father. Sure, sure, yeah. I think the friendship thing is... Is, is a different term maybe than I want to invest my time where you find time. And, and I'm going to show value to you the way that you need to feel valued. And, and if we can do that, man, it's, I'm telling you, it changes the way parents and teenagers interact together. Let's grab a couple of calls. Here we're going to go to Lori in San Jose. Lori, come on in with your comment or question for my guest tonight, Andy Branner. Hi. Um, I um, have taught high school and different age group students, and um, I found that, uh, you know, sex is a big problem as far as, you know, student-student interactions becoming more casual. But does your book address, um, uh, you know, faculty uh, becoming involved in promoting sexuality, like uh, what Governor Brown did uh, and the legislature did as far as um, SB. I think it's SB 48. 48, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and even the bigger equation there, Lori, is the fact that we've seen 
so much of almost substitute parenting going on in the classroom. And, and some of it, I think, to be fair, Andy, a few parents kind of fell on their swords, didn't do their job. And then some, I think, well-meaning but over-enthusiastic folks at the, the educational level said, well, look, if the parents are not going to teach their kids right from wrong and, and uh, sex education, we'll take care of that for them. The problem is, you know, fast forward 40 years after so-called sex education made its way into the classroom, now all of a sudden it's moved from, you know, just good health information to suddenly uh, promoting an agenda. Andy? Right. So the book, to speak to your question directly, Lori, the book does not address the public school's responsibility or not responsibility. So I'll speak just off the cuff in, in, in the research that I found. It speaks more to what Craig was talking about. We see administrators all over the country who are standing up saying we need sex education in the classroom, and we find parents that are trying to opt out of those things in, in a way that they say, hey, it's our responsibility, we're going to teach them. Well, let me just give you a little uh, a little story. We had a guy that was sending his kid out to our place here in Colorado, and he said, are you guys going to teach sexuality out there? And I said, well, yeah, we have a whole course on dating and sexuality as it relates to the Christian worldview, and what, what, is, it, what is God's intention for us in developing a relationship? Well, the man was well-intentioned on the other end of the phone, and he said, he said well, I'd like my daughter to opt out of that class. And I said, well, that's great, because we don't want to do anything that offends parents. We want to make sure we're locking arms with parents. We want to do what you want to do. I said, could you tell me a little bit, like, why? Why don't you want her in that class? And he said, well, we're going we're gonna to teach her those things at home, and we just want to reserve that conversation, to which I responded, incredible. That's incredible. That's a great idea. Thanks for being good parents. And then I said, if you don't mind, might I ask, how old is your daughter when she's coming out here? I'd just like to know, you know, where she's going to fit in, where she's going to play, how we can identify her. He said, well, she's 15 years old. <laughs> to that I said, Brother, I don't mean to step on your toes, but that ship has already sailed. Yeah, you're, 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 you're going to have the conversation? Yeah, well, you should have been thinking about that probably 15, probably, you know, eight years ago. Our research shows that the average first sexual experience happens at 12 years old. Yep. There you go. And that, that, is, that is the stark reality that I think a lot of parents need to deal with. You know, even as we think about how we were parented, Andy, and wish to apply some of those lessons to how we in turn become parents and parent our own kids, we've got to realize this clock is moving faster than any of us realize. It's, it's fast, and that, that statistic of 12 years old means that 50% of them parents are younger than 12. And so we've got to, if we're going to stand up and take the, the mantle of teaching our kids about sexuality, then we've got to start those conversations, as awkward as they might seem, earlier and earlier. Some good insights. If they want to get copies of the book, Andy, it's available, I would imagine, through your website as well as Amazon.com. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Amazon.com, uh, AndyBrainer.com is my website, or you can just flip over to NavPress. Uh, dot com and you can go down to the teenage section and it's highlighted there. All right, an expose on teen sex and dating, what's really going on and how to talk about it. Information again on Andy's website, Andy Brainer, A-N-D-Y-B-R-A-N-E-R dot com. Andy, thanks for the time and the insight. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is the largest and fastest growing segment of the United States population, typically called the baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, comprising some 80 million Americans, and our numbers are being added to by 10,000 every day. Imagine that 10,000 Americans hit retirement age every single day. As we experience the grain of America, the big question is, how do we go about capturing 
this amazing block of individuals, not only in terms of harnessing their, their collective talents and skills and ability and brain power and, and ministry abilities, but then, too, how can we most adequately minister to the needs of this growing sector of the population that, you know, as for all of us that are heading toward uh, the twilight years, you begin to think about the life that you've led, think about... Um, the shortness of the time that you have left and questions with regard to the the significance of your life and ultimately being heaven-bound. Insights on the issue of renewing ministry for and by seniors. We're joined tonight by Dr. Michael Parker. He is co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church. And uh, we appreciate so much uh, your time tonight, Dr. Parker, and being with us uh, to talk a bit about this important topic. Well, thank you. Your background includes that of adjunct associate professor of the Division of Geriatric Medicine and uh, Care, <clears throat> pardon me, at the Center for Aging at the University of Alabama in Burning, uh, Birmingham. We have two centers for aging here in Alabama, one affiliated with our medical school, and then we have a center for mental health and aging at the, at the University of Alabama. So UAB is actually a separate university with a you know very... Uh, and with an outstanding uh, department of uh, division of geriatric medicine, so I have a joint appointment. This background, of course, uniquely qualifies you to speak to this topic of just how well churches are equipped in ministering to uh, not just the needs of the aging population, but then, as the book also suggests, how to harness this amazing subset of our culture. I think that's part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem. I think it's a a wonderful gift from our Heavenly Father that he's given prolonged life, and yet it seems like we we haven't captured that yet. And so what we want to do is is think about ministry from seniors first, and then during that final season of life, ministry to them. If you think about one demographic, it... um, if you make it to 65 on average, and these are just general averages, but if you make it to 65 and you're a woman, you might live another, typically you'll live another 19 years. And four to five of those years might be years of dependency where you need some help. Uh, if you're a man, you, on average you live uh, not quite as long, another 15 years, and three of those years might be years of dependency. Um, you know, Billy Graham has just written a book called uh, Nearing Home, and in the opening introduction, he, he writes, All my life I was taught how to die as a Christian, but no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. I wish they had, because I'm an old man now, and believe it. it believe me, it's not easy. And I think that part of the problem is that uh, we need to capture that vision that we need our seniors. We want to issue a call out there and say we need you. And uh, and then there are very specific things over the 12 to 15 years that we've been doing research with congregations that can form the basis of a ministry. Um, but the, the basic idea is to have ministry from seniors. Um, it's interesting uh, how I became involved in, in geriatrics and gerontology. I actually was was on active duty and uh, I was uh, assigned to 7th Medical Command. I had great responsibilities. It was right in the middle of, uh, right in the beginning stages of Desert Storm. And my father passed away. And so I came back to the funeral. And when I flew back to 7th Medical Command, they had a memorial service for my father. And I realized that a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform 
um, had similar issues, you know, aging parent issues from a distance. And so I um, uncovered this wonderful National Institute of Aging postdoctoral fellowship at Michigan. I applied and got accepted. And then I had to apply, and then the Lord had to do some great things, and I had to apply for a long-term civilian training from the Army Medical Department, and I got that. And then as things wind down in the military, you have to kind of iron out your assignments a year out. And uh, my colleagues in psychiatry said, Parker, you're going to do a child and family fellowship at Walter Reed. And I said, well, I'm not I'm not going, <laughs> and uh, I want to go to Michigan and... and uh, and they, you know, basically said, we're a young army and, and you're going to have to do the fellowship at Walter Reed or you put your career in jeopardy. So somebody said I should go talk to my boss. And uh, this was a two-star general who had the weight of the world on him. And uh, we were responsible for medical care for Desert Storm. And uh, when I went in to see him, he mirrored the, the ideas of the, you know, psychiatrist, my colleagues. And then he said, what are you going to do there? And I said, I'm going to, you know, thank you for coming to my father's memorial service. And I told him what I just shared with your listeners, uh, that, you know, I was interested in studying caregiving and particularly distant caregiving. And his whole countenance changed. And he said, I just got a call from Iowa from my family priest. And he said, your mother is leaving the gas on the stove. What do you want to do? And you see, here you have uh, captured in his story what's going on almost across the country nationwide, particularly for those who care for aging parents from a distance. And he said, you know, he wanted to honor his country with his service and that he'd been training all of his life for, and yet he wanted to honor his mother. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenging, uh, significant life event that most people at midlife face, and it's something we need to prepare for. And so we talk a little about that in the book. And... Um, so that's how I got involved. Uh, he said, tell those gentlemen that you are going to Michigan. And the next day, you know, they congratulated me for sticking to my guns. And, and off I went for a wonderful postdoc at Michigan, which changed my life, you know, and my professional trajectory. So that's a quick intro into how I got into this. You know, the amazing thing is that we see so much focus these days on health care issues for seniors and uh, approaching that aspect of the physical needs of uh, the the graying segment of American population, and yet there's so little spoken of when it comes to meeting to uh, meeting the spiritual needs. And we're going to spend some time focusing on that when we come back after a brief timeout. Dr. Michael Parker is with us tonight. As you hear, a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army, serving now as associate professor at the School of Social Work and Mental Health and Aging, the University of Alabama, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. When we come back, how do you uniquely meet the spiritual needs of seniors? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking about the grain of America tonight, 80 million of us in that generation called the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, and as some 10,000 of us every single day reaches retirement age, it begs the question, 
How do we go about focusing on ministering to this unique and growing segment of the population, not only in terms of, of harnessing the talent, skills, and abilities that they have uh, as con- active contributors to the church and ministry in the body of Christ, but then, too, what about ministering to their needs? There's lots of focus these days, of course, about health care and, and uh, care services for the elderly and the aging. As much as we talk about the physical needs, though, what about this aspect of meeting their unique spiritual needs. We're talking about that in this segment of the program with us, Dr. Michael Parker, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. Let's talk about this. You know, every church uh, pretty much anywhere in America has a youth ministry or a young singles group. Are we going to see the day, Dr. Parker, when many churches will also have an older adults ministry? Yes. In fact, uh, a lot of people kind of age out of youth ministry into senior ministry uh, from our experience. Uh, but the, the problem is that we're not addressing it systemically in our, in our seminaries, and we're not preparing people for, that, for the fact that people are living so long. And so that's kind of an area we've been working on. And if, if you look at something even um, as challenging as a disaster like Katrina or the recent F5 tornadoes that we had come through Tuscaloosa, seniors... Um, um, are hit more severely because of that. Uh, roughly 70% of the casualties from Katrina, 60 to 70% were seniors, and 80% of those dear people belonged to congregations. And so one of the responsibilities the church has, I believe deacons and elders, is to make sure that we have kind of a, a safety net to older people prepare for the kind of disasters that might be characteristic of the geography where you are. Um, I lived in Monterey for a while, and I know some of the dangers you face out there. And really, I think you know, our deacons really need to take responsibility for making sure that our seniors are safe you know, in, in the event of a disaster. Uh, here in Tuscaloosa, where the F5 tornadoes hit, in one uh, church alone, we had four deaths um, related to the tornadoes. And they weren't directly related. They were indirectly related in the sense that they were affected by the consequences and the dislocation of the tornado, and they didn't adjust well. So that's just one small area that I think churches can step up, um, helping. The, you, you were talking about some of the statistics. You know, some would argue that one in two over 80 will suffer from dementia, and roughly two-thirds of those will be Alzheimer's disease. And we're diagnosing that um, awful disease earlier and earlier now. What does someone do with that knowledge that, you know, they're basically going to lose their memory? And for a Christian, it's the loss of memory of God, their memories of God, their memories of Scripture. What assurances can we give them? And so the co-author on our book, uh, Jim Houston, who, by the way, was mentored by C.S. Lewis at Oxford, wonderful scholar, uh, the most joyful Christian at 88 that I know, and brilliant, has, you know, helped me write a chapter on kind of a a theology of dementia. And he would say that we need to reassure anyone who's been diagnosed, and I'm cutting to the basic idea, is that they're remembered of God and they can trust Him. And that's just one nuance, again, of how we might develop some ministry. Do we also need to see, you made reference to the issue of seminaries and 
schools that are preparing pastors and those for full-time ministry. Do we need to see the beginnings of development, Dr. Parker, of unique ministries? Because I think of the needs, as you say, of whether you're ministering to people who are Alzheimer's patients or their loved ones, uh, those that are just, even as the longevity tables do what they do, and we're seeing people living longer and longer. I mean, the growing number of centarians, for example, right. in America is, is significant. The needs that they have is not just like treating the older end of the demographic within our congregation. Well, pastor's in his 60s. Surely he can help meet the needs and, and pray for and care for somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. That may not be necessarily the case, especially as we see folks that are 90 and centarians. Absolutely. And, of course, these people are not able to travel. Um, they have mobility issues often and some frailness. And the church can be a part of helping people age successfully, by the way, to look at it on, uh, from a positive point of view. We can help people avoid disease and disability. We can help them kind of maximize their cognitive and physical fitness. We can help them be more actively engaged in ministry and in life. I think all our congregations can do a better job of asking our senior saints to pray for ministry and to engage in Holy Spirit-led ministry in the latter stages of life. Uh, you look at examples like Dr. Houston and Dr. Graham, who are, um, who their notion of retirement is not age-graded. You know, we we live in a very age-graded uh, society, and our seminaries are not immune from that, nor are our churches. We think we, we go to school, we go to work, and then we retire. But the truth is, we, if we're lifelong learners, we go to school our entire lives, uh, we really work our entire lives. And, and you know, so the, these are structures that are really lifelong. So we, we go to school, we work, and we um, um, need to take respites along the way. So those concepts really don't work and the church needs to challenge you know to provide kind of a countercultural perspective on the value of life in the final stages and be involved in helping develop uh, caregiver support programs uh, helping churches partner that are too small to manage these programs help us uh, you know do some late life planning end of life aging in place initiatives uh, helping people prepare for uh, uh, caregiving and now we're talking about you know, middle-stage adults who are worried about their aging parents, and then challenging the, the elderly to engage with their young adult children about their, their long-term care plans. The long-term care industry in this country is broken, and it's in trouble. And, you know, when you look at the statistics that suggest we have more people over the age of 65 than we have 18 and younger, those uh, demographics are not going to change. And so it's kind of the elephant on the table, and we, we have to help the church embrace it. And the good news that these senior saints are around, these elders are long, around longer and can help us. So, you know, involving them in uh, small group life so that they're nurturing and loving younger people, um, uh, witnessing to the power of Christ in their lives, uh, and maybe setting up kind of a life review ministry so that you're capturing these stories of these wonderful senior saints and putting it to film. And there's a lot of work being done in that area. And we know from uh, our research that when someone completes a life review in the right way, it's an antidepressant. And so when somebody listens to your story and your story of faith, it really is uh, 
encouraging to that person and affirming. And uh, there are all kinds of lessons there that can be learned and applied by younger generations. Developing a Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors, new book co-authored by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Dr. Michael Parker. The new book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And Dr. Parker, thanks so much for the time and the insights. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.